Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Today, we have on an amazing ally in our fight for equity in the workplace and equality in the world. I'm super excited to bring to you John Eno. People know him out there. A lot of my listeners know John. He is um, probably best known for his efforts in DEI and creating equity in the workplace and equality in the world. Um, and I'm excited to have him share more on how he got to be so well known in that arena. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here at the Women Mean Business podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of you. It's always great to run into you in our various circles, but to, to be able to you know, have a discussion with your listeners, it's, it's really great. It's an honor. Awesome. The honor's all mine. Well, I want to ask you a bit about your background and what compelled you to do what you now do. Wow. That's a 58-year question, right? <laughs> and it looks like a 32-year question. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess I'm a little older than I look. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So I, I've been in the chief diversity officer role for about three and a half years now. Um, but when people, you know, say, um, kind of, where did your passion come for that? And, you know, it's quite simply, you know, you, you grow up it, you, you know, being diverse, you grow up. Um, I'm very conscious that when I took on the role that my, all my predecessors were African-American and I even told our CEO that I go, you know, historically, this has been an African-American role. Do you think this will be okay? Um, and he talked to some people, he said, no, I think you'd be fine. And as I was very conscious of this going into the role, you know, I met with a number of our people, a number of our black leaders, leaders and said, you know, although I, I'm not black, although I am not walking, you know, can never you know, understand the experience, can never walk in your shoes, so to speak. Um, certainly I have experienced my share of racism and um, in growing up, um, you know, my, my parents were um, of the generation that, of Japanese Americans that were incarcerated during World War II. And so it was always something, you know, in our household, just, you know, thinking about how we were treated differently because of the color of our skins and the kind of conversations where I had with my parents. So, you know, starting from a, from a young age, just being, just being part of a, a household that kind of went through that, I said, certainly under, understood something in terms of some of the, the, the suffering. Um, and so that's kind of the, the background. Um, you know, what's when, interesting mm -hmm. about that, John, is uh, you ask a lot of um, white people, when did you first start to think about race? Mm -hmm. And most of us can't tell you that question, answer to that question. We, we don't, I mean, I don't think at a young person I ever thought about that. Um, but so it's so intriguing to me that because of your family history and what a, what a terrible, terrible experience that was, um, I'm sure, you thought about race at such a young age. Yeah, no, exactly. It's funny that you say that because um, a, a little plug here. So for hopefully some people know that actually I do a, um, a podcast as well called Inclusivity Included. And our guest uh, that we're recording tomorrow, as a matter of fact, um, was a uh, is a professor in a seminar that I took called Reexamining Whiteness, and the first day or the first session we talked about at what point did you understand or, or think about race, and this was for a white audience, um, and for a lot of people it was just like you say you don't really 
are not conscious of race for a long time, either because you grew up in a you know, predominantly white uh, community, or it just really never, you know, never really affected you until uh, later in life. Um, so, you know, definitely that's a, that's a very common experience that you, you mentioned. Um, and so now that we, where we are is like, how can we make sure that people are, you know, having these conversations? How can they you know, think that, you know, start thinking about what they can do um, now that they're at least certainly more aware of it? Yes. And I think that um, it, I hope that these questions have been being posed long before the horrific Floyd incident. Um, but I think that I'm committed to asking these questions. I know you are committed personally and professionally to asking these questions. I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of people know about Japanese internment camps. I'm not mm -hmm. sure they teach that in schools, and I know they should. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's where we start. We start at a young age becoming aware of not being the other, but instead embracing and being curious about the other you know we yeah. i think otherness is made up really because 99 percent of our genes are the same mm -hmm. and i think that this this whole pretend propagandist move of racism is is it's a it's soon to die we're going to cut the head off the snake so let me ask you what compelled you to do what you do for a living well that's an interesting evolution as well um so you know i've been a uh I graduated law school now 33 years ago. Um, and literally for the last 32 years, I've been a practicing lawyer. Um, I, um, about 15 years ago, I've been with a, a large law firm pretty much my entire uh, career. And for the last 15 years or so, um, I've been in law firm management. Um, and uh, it's been fortunate to kind of ride the rise the rank, so to speak, at Reed Smith. Uh, where I ultimately became part of our senior management team, um, leading a global division of about um, 700 people around the world. Um, and it was through that experience, just understanding kind of that, not the legal practice, but the uh, management side of the business really kind of helped me a lot in, in terms of just um, understanding the, 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 the um, you know, how the sausage is made, I guess you'd say, yeah. right, in terms of a, a large, a large organization. Um, and so, what uh, it, it happened is um, uh, now three and a half years ago, my predecessor at Reed Smith, um, uh, bless her soul, Deborah Broyles, um, passed away from brain cancer, uh, very tragically and very suddenly. Um, and our um, our chairman, our CEO, uh, approached me then to, to see if I would be willing to take on. Um, the DNI role, uh, as previously at that point, managing partner of our um, Southern California office. And I'm um, that you took it. Yeah, and um, so you know why? How did I get the? You know how did I get into this um, role? Um, it was it was more than anything. He he said, look, you know historically we we've had people here who weren't as senior, who weren't as experienced, and I want you to do this because. Um, you know, you're, you're someone who knows the ins and outs of the firms, has a you know, large, you know, very senior, um, large influence within the firm. And I think really you could make a, make a difference. Um, and so I, you know, obviously took that to heart. And uh, you have, you, know. you definitely have. Um, I want to ask you, do you miss practicing? So, yeah, it's a great, great question because um, it, it's, uh, the evolution was I took this on three and a half years ago 
probably at that point still practicing about half the time, but the demands of the role were just you know increasing as you as you imagine. Um, so by the end of last year, it was like you know I was lucky to have five percent of my time to be able to practice law. So come the beginning of this year, I said you know it's just just fooling fooling myself and fooling the firm to think that I can still try to juggle both. And so effective this year, um, I officially stopped practicing law. And when people ask me that question, Susan, you know, what's it like? It's like, oh my gosh, it's it's just you no, know, you didn't. I didn't realize how much, <laughs> yeah, you know, how much pressure I we would put on myself um, just to you know continue to be um, you know a big firm lawyer, uh, a big firm partner, you know, trying to have a big book of business with clients and all those. And now my clients are obviously, you know, we're, we're just focused on uh, diversity and inclusion efforts. So I would say it feels like it's a completely different shift in direction, uh, but I'm really, really excited about it. Um, it seems quite to fulfilling to you because every time I talk to you, you very pa you're very passionate about the role and what you do. And I think that not that I don't love a lawyer. I'm married to a lawyer. We all love our lawyers. Let's just be clear, folks, on the record. I love my lawyers. Um, but you really are making a difference in the world. You're definitely changing um, the landscape, not just for people who walk the path now, but for future generations. I think that this is such important work. Again, lawyers, we need lawyers. Everybody loves their lawyer. <laughs> But what you do right now is so remarkable and you do such a good job of it. And yes, I um, would say, I think that's the greatest differentiator about Reed Smith is what you do. Well, thank you, Susan. That's just so great to hear. And, and you know, more than anything, and I know we want to talk about being an effective ally and that's really what it is because, you know, I'm in my role as, you know, chair of DNI. Um, I'm an ally to the black community. I'm an ally to the LGBT community. I'm an ally to our women, um, you know, ally to so many different groups, our disabled, uh, disabled employees. Um, so it's just uh, speaking, you know, just to, to, to learning to help each other. Um, I, I like, the, from, from, at least from my perspective, what I try to do is take a, a, a whole approach in that, Part of what I do is trying to design new systems and, and processes and re-examine what we've done historically and how we can do things better. Um, you know, telling the rest of the legal community or actually the rest of the, the corporate world um, how we can do things better um, collaboratively. But at the same time, it's really, really rewarding to just work with individuals as well. And so for that reason, um, recently I got my coaching, executive coaching certification to work with people one-on-one. -on -one. And so you can help, you know, an organization, you can help an industry, but also don't forget about the individuals and just spending the time um, helping, you know, sometimes it's helping one person at a time. And that's as rewarding as, um, you know, changing an, an organizational uh, culture. You know, I love that you brought that up. I had planned to ask you about your new coaching certificate. I want to say that um, I do a lot of teaching and I know that people have this misperception that you can change a policy and then everyone will then wake up the next day and their behavior will have changed. And that's not true. So I do think that change starts at an individual level. And I do think that when people like you 
are influential and change, change thoughts and attitudes and then people elect to change their own behaviors. That's how we make a difference. That's really where uh, the rubber meets the road versus just, you know, we see companies right now cutting a check to Black Lives Matter and putting a statement out on their website, but nothing changes at the individual level in the firm or in the company. So I, bravo to you. I know the class, classes that you took or the certification that you got is difficult to get. Mm -hmm. um, so bravo, congratulations. And, you know, I, I plan to learn a little bit or a lot from you at some point. <laughs> um, I already have. Um, I did want to ask you something, you know, in light of what's going on in the world today, especially in our nation, um, sure. you know, this has been going on for a long time, but this horrific incident with um, Mr. Floyd has really, you know, wiped all the covers, you know, pulled the curtains back. You know, we see this ugly, ugly uh, racism that has resided on the underbelly, but is now at the forefront. What, you know, in your role, I mean, I'm sure you've been extremely, you know, glued to the TV and glued to the news. What keeps you occupied in light of this this new heightened sense of, you know, intense, you know, atmosphere? Yeah. Well, you know, when, when, when I thought my life was busy before, um, <laughs> it's, 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 but it's in a good way because we're really, um, you know, all the attention that, that we're, we're talking about racial injustice right now um, is, you know, is the, is the D&I program's, uh, you know, mission uh, more than anything. And so like I, I remember back on um, a couple weekends ago when um, the, just that weekend when the riots really started uh, um, heating up, um, by Sunday I was on the phone with our CEO, um, you know, talking about what we needed to do. Um, you know, and obviously the first thing we did was to uh, work on a statement that he would release publicly uh, in, in all, all, always within the firm. But you know, like you said, Susan, this is not just about making us, you know, a public statement or throwing, donating some money to an organization. And what we've done um, since then, and literally on Thursday, we're going to unveil our racial equality action plan. And this is, uh, you know, our, our DNI office is, is central to this, but I'm so pleased that it's being driven by our senior management. And this is really a, the conversation that I had with our CEO at the time. Um, is that you know a, a lot of uh, maybe the instinct of some organizations would be oh okay let's uh, th this is clearly an issue that we've got to get our uh, our, our DNI program our African American Employee Resource Group um, engaged in um, and I said very bluntly um, on a, on a call with a lot of people on it um, okay the blacks in this country have been suffering and they've been victims for 400 years. And now that uh, you know we, we want to do something, you're going. We can't ask them, and you're not going to put all the onus and the and the work on them to fix things. Exactly. That's just making them victims again, right? It's not up to the to our black employees to fix this. This is up to management leadership has to take this under the wing. Sure, our our black employees will be there to help consult and and you know. And, and develop content and all the rest, but this has got to be taken on by senior um, leadership. And you know, fortunately, thankfully, um, you know, it is. And so we've developed this comprehensive plan 
um, that it's just a start, it's a framework, but um, it involves three, three pillars for us. Um, one is, um, is, is healing and supporting and how do we make sure that we're listening to you know, all of our, our people, uh, but especially our, our, our black employees. Um, developing education programs. So like we were talking about, you know, how to be an effective ally, how to, how, how, how to make sure that the, the white employees know, you know, how they can be supportive and how, what, what things that they can do. Um, and then, you know, thinking about internally, the, the reforms we need to make. Um, what is it about our systems and processes that are continue to, you know, result in bias? And so continue to examine that. That's just kind of one pillar. We're also saying, how are we going to um, change the world we live in? So we're lawyers, so we can do pro bono projects. We, we're supporting the NAAC Legal Defense Fund. Um, there's another project we're doing with, with the bail project to look at bail reform, um, criminal justice reform. Also, in how we can be involved in our communities and, and really make a change. Um, and then finally, just thinking about how we partner with other organizations and our clients to kind of join up here and, and, and link arms uh, all together um, to continue to drive change. And the biggest part of it, for, which from my perspective was so important, is I wanted to create an infrastructure that was going to be institutionalized and is going to have lasting effect. Because I said, when, when the protests you know, start quieting down and eventually you know, they, they, will, they will quiet down, I don't want to see the tension go away from this call to action. We've seen a call to action now, but now we've got to make sure we're going to execute on it. And so by institutionalizing it, by having it in a, um, a formal program within the, within the company that will take ideas and, and, and programming and, and, and initiatives that people can know how to align with what we're doing so that all this energy will make sure that it goes forward and has a lasting impact and, and continues to, to, to be discussed you know, one year, five years down the road to make sure that we're continuing to drive change. That's how we're gonna make sure this is just not an episodic uh, response, uh, but it's actually gonna be meaningful change. You know, things like, are we throwing a, you know, a dedicated budget to this? Are we putting dedicated resources go. to this, right? Are we putting dedicated people from the HR, marketing, you know, other, other knowledge management, IT department to make sure that we're, we're throwing, um, you know, a uh, consistent effort at this. So. I don't know the exact form it's going to take. I'm telling people a lot. Um, I actually issued a statement on this to our people um, that this is just a start. We don't, you know, we clearly don't have all the answers. We we just I, I just want to make sure that we're going to start thinking about this and, and doing it in a coordinated manner. This is not up to the DNI office. This is not up to the pro bono office. This is not up to you know uh, um, our HR department. All these groups have to be working together yes. collaboratively in one, what do you call it, a task force, a program, a committee that's going to address this going forward. So really pleased of the progress. It's only been a couple of weeks, but uh, hopefully this will set the, you know, the groundwork and the infrastructures that will you know, have a lasting, uh, lasting um, effect or lasting progress. Well, folks, I want to say one thing. Um, Reed Smith is not paying me to host this interview, but I will give a big shout out to Reed Smith because a lot of companies and a lot of law firms don't know what to do and they're afraid to express that they don't know what they don't know. This firm has said we don't have all the answers and it's not just something in the strategy for this year that our D&I department needs to deal with. 
it's something everyone needs to deal with. And I know personally from my circle of uh, friends of color, they are tired of being asked how to solve the problem of racism and mm -hmm. it shouldn't be theirs to solve. Great. So I love that you said that, that everyone at Reed Smith is rolling up their sleeves and admitting we don't know all the answers, but we know action needs to be taken. So let's do this and wade through the unknown and figure out what's the best way, you know, to proceed. So how courageous of you to have, um, you know, spoken up at that meeting and said, this is not for the people of color to take on as their own. This is for all of us to do uh, together. So I love that. That's probably why you are who you are and what you do, um, why you do what you do. You're so good at bringing people together. Um, well, Mr. Collaborative, not, not a trait that many um, men in my gender-based communications teachings, I know men tend to be more competitive than collaborative, and I try to change that, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, you know, <laughs> but you're awesome, so that's great. Well, let me there ask you, you this, to shift the focus a bit, um, mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't want to be tone deaf to what's happening in the world today or in, in our country today, but I also know that I started my company because I cared about women's roles in the workplace. Mm -hmm. How do you think that in shifting to that focus, how do you think men can help women achieve more equity in the workplace? Well, there's a lot there. Um, and I'll tell you, this has been a, a, a struggle with um, even within our firm, just in terms of the approach of um, how to, um, you know, advance our women. Um, and, I guess historically it's always been viewed as the women's program that was for the women and, and only amongst the women. And mm -hmm. you know, you and I were at the conference, the Women in Legal Conference down in San Diego earlier this year, and maybe I said it on a panel, is that we've got to get away from this mentality that we've got to fix the women. It's not the women that need the fixing, it's the it's the people around them and the men and, and that that you've got to have the conversation with them. Right. Okay, so, so maybe I should pay Reed Smith because that's amazing what you just said. <laughs> that's awesome. Bravo. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And, and you know, just just thinking about things, and I was having this conversation um, with one of our leaders on our um, executive committee, which is the equivalent of our board of directors, um, last week, this weekend, just fairly recently, about how to make sure that you know we're supporting people of color. Um, our, 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 and our women in particular. And the, the conversation went kind of along the lines, especially with respect to women, uh, along the lines of this is that, you know, you, you, we saw in the last recession in, in, you know, in 2008, 2009, that there were, you know, layoffs and all the rest. And, as, and during that period, um, you know, we just actually hosted a webinar on this, um, how to make sure we don't repeat what happened in 2008 and 2009 and that a disproportionate amount of women and people of color were let go. Um, and you know, if, if and when you know, law firms or other organizations start you know, having to make cuts or layoffs or furloughs, we wanna make sure that the women and the people of color aren't the first on the list. And so the conversation I was having with our, our member of our executive committee was that you know, historically, or how do you survive in a large organization? And whether you're in a, you know, a, a sales company uh, that sells widgets or, you know, or other professional services, 
you know, you, 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 the people that tend to be protected are the people who have large books of businesses or they are part of very strong teams. Um, it's teams that, um, you know, are, are, are critical to the, to, the, to the business, right? And the challenge is, is that, we're, you know, we see is that it's like with women that how can make sure that these women are, are really at the center of these teams? And the commentary you hear is like, well, um, you know, we have a problem giving her this responsibility because she has, her, you know, some other family issues or she's had issues in the past. And, you know, that, has, that kind of talk has just got to stop. Yes. You can't, you can't say that this person isn't as valuable as that person because they may have some family responsibilities or because they took time off to have um, kids, you know? And so be able to say as, a, as, as the, the, frankly, the male leadership of that team says, no, we want Susan, you know, on, on the team because Susan is a great person to, to have on this team. And we are going to, to, to utilize her for all of her talents, right? And it doesn't mean that Susan has to be there, you know, 24 seven. This is why we're trying to really encourage the men to take parental leave. Yes. You know, it's like, you know, we, we just did a conference last year where Christina Blacklaws in London said she took over, she became the head of the equivalent of the ABA for, um, for, uh, for, for the UK. And on her first project on DNI was to encourage uh, men to take parental leave. And the, the women kind of scratched their heads like, how is that supporting the women in terms of a DNI program? And she said, because once you make sure that the that that the parental responsibilities aren't all on the women, that it's as likely as a man's going to take parental leave as a woman's going to take parental leave, then the women will have an equal shot at a job. The women will have an equal shot at a at a promotion because that's the way society's got to start looking at things differently. So, that's right. That's right. I love that she had the courage to say that because oftentimes, and it's not spoken, but, you know, women face that maternal wall bias. Well, you know, the more we get men to understand that it's your role as a parent to be able to take this time off and bond with mm -hmm. your children, those people who, you know, engage in maternal wall bias will stop. They mm -hmm. won't be able to do that anymore. So um, that is a really great I, I love that. So I, I worked at State Street for a long time and um, they did have that before it was cool. So bravo to them and mm -hmm. bravo to you for bringing those thoughts up and being the voice for women. Um, I'm always curious. I listen very intently to all my guests, but that particular question, I'm always really curious about the answer I get from men on how they can help women to achieve equity. And that was very powerful. Let me ask you a question that um, I probably, you know, it's sort of a wild card question. So if you're not game for it and you don't like surprises, <laughs> I won't ask you. Um, but I have this box of 144 really thoughtful, meaningful questions. And sometimes if I like my guest a lot, I'll, I'll give it a go and say, hey, are you game? And if you say yes, <laughs> I'll ask you. <laughs> Are you game for a wild yeah, card question? That, that's, this is so fun. It reminds me of like a game our kids play, we play. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe it shouldn't. There's some <laughs> that are inappropriate, but yeah, it's, it's fun. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to pull a card from my box of meaningful questions. All right. I don't think this will be tough for you. Um, a particular <laughs> person in your life who changed the way you see the world. 
Wow. Um, well, the, the obvious one that comes really of crop mine is, is my wife. Um, yes. um, she has really, you know, changed the way I, I view the world, not only because of the way that I you know, view her, um, but so, so much in my life. Um, here's the biggest thing, I guess, that she's always told me. Is she, go, she said, John, you, you, you worry too much about what people think about you. She goes, I, I don't give a crud about what people think about me. And I'm happy to speak, speak where, where I am. And I'm happy to get in, in people's faces because this is, um, this is who I am. And people are going to have to accept me who I am. So she goes, I, I think you spend way too much time worrying about what other people think. And She's it's a wise that, woman. Yeah. And so it's something that I, I take to heart. It's really, you know, impacted, um, you know, things that I do. Um, maybe one of the reasons why I'm not afraid to speak up, like in the meeting we just said, is because, you know, I don't care what you think. You're paying me to, to, to be the voice, uh, you know, here. And, um, you know, I'm going to give you my opinion. Um, That's beautiful. That's amazing. So there's a book you might enjoy reading. It's called In Defense of Troublemakers. Mm -hmm. And it's about dissenters and people who are change agents and people who have the courage to speak up against the status quo. And your, your wife is right. Other people's opinions of you is none of your business because you just need to be the best person you can be better than you were yesterday. And you can't control other people. So just be your highest and best and move on. So apparently it's worked because you are out there. <laughs> opening your mouth and creating, <laughs> you're stirring the pot and creating good change and change for the better. And I'm just so proud to know you and, and impressed by what you've done and what you continue to do. Um, speaking of what you continue to do, how do you spend your free time? Um, <laughs> this is interesting because um, Do you have any free time? <laughs> Ivelisse Crespo, who is uh, Reed Smith's global DNI advisor, um, we've had this conversation as well. And um, you know, I don't know, we talk about like you know, like you say, books you've read, and I you know, and I you know, turn her on, turn them on to um, some books that uh, you know that I've been reading, like um, uh, Reshma Saljani, uh, Brave Not Perfect. Right, um, yes. great, great book. Um, and then she goes, you know, but my partner's been telling me that in my free time, I really shouldn't be just reading all these books about social injustice and, and racism and things like that. I really should just do something completely apart and completely unplugged from what, what you do, um, what you do uh, for, for work or, or where, where most of your waking hours are spent. So for me, um, the, the, the things that I've really done that to try to just get my mind in a completely different area. One is I've taken up over the probably last year or so on meditation. Nice. Um, this comes from my coaching uh, practice as well. Um, and so about, you know, a little more than a year ago, I, I started doing the Calm app. Um, oh, yeah. I'm proud to say I'm about, you know, 300 sessions in now. Um, <laughs> But I also started reading a book. My neighbor, my next neighbor, actually turned me on to it. Um, it's a book on meditation um, called "Wherever You Go, There You Are." Uh, One of my John, favorite yeah, books, right? John. Yes. By, by John Kabat-Zinn. I love and, him. And so, ha having read um, the, that book, um, I've literally kind of weaned myself off the Calm app. I do it every so often, but uh, that kind of becomes a little bit like my spiritual guide to kind of meditate on. Um, and 
uh, it was funny, the first time I did this, I told my wife, I go, oh my gosh, I actually meditated without the Calm app and it felt like, you know, the, the training wheels came off when you're riding a bike. <laughs> and I felt like I was completely, you know, naked there without any, without any support. But I, 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 you know, I went through it and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's been uh, very, very great. So that's one thing. And the other thing is just, uh, you know, my wife and I exercise every day. We do some kind of workout and the, the beauty of, you know, exercise, obviously it's good for your, your, your health. But it's also very, um, you know, it's good for stress as well. But it just, I find it to be very, very meditative. It's just you, you're just concentrating, you're not thinking about all the things at work or other things that you have to, you have to take care of. But it's just a really great way to to get your mind off of uh, and all the other things that are going on in the world. I think, John, this is my favorite answer I've ever gotten to that question. Um, I love that book. I read it years ago. Um, I've read a mm -hmm. lot. I've studied Buddhism. Um, I think that it's very difficult to meditate. And when you said, you know, the training wheels fell off when you stopped using <laughs> that, that's so spot on. It's so funny. It's really hard to meditate because right. you have to get above the thinking mind, which people like mm -hmm. you and I, we, we think all the time, um, mm -hmm. constantly. So to get above that, but don't fall asleep, you know, that, that right. in between. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't try to meditate after you've had a couple glasses of wine because oh, all exactly. you'll do is fall asleep. <laughs> My husband tries to meditate, and I'm like, I hear you snoring. <laughs> you know? So it sounds to me like um, your wife being such an amazing, amazing influence in your life. Uh, it's okay that you're sheltering in place. You're happy home together, working out and. And, and doing good things for your mind and your body and your soul. So that's wonderful. You are delightful. If people want to reach you, John, how can they reach you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Just go to reedsmith.com. Um, you can look up my profile. Um, I also, here's a little plug for my coaching business. Um, you can go to cumbrealtaadvisors.com. So C-U-M-B-R-E-A-L-T-A advisors.com. Uh, you can get in touch maybe that way. Um, but you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I've, you know, got a lot of followers on LinkedIn, so please feel free to reach out and connect that way. Awesome. Well, folks, I'll put all that in the blog in case you didn't get to jot that down. I'll make sure to put it in the blog. And, um, John, you are always so amazing. It's been such a pleasure. My cheeks are burning from smiling <laughs> so much. Yeah. You're such an all around great. You're the, you're the man that we need out there. Um, you know, sharing your voice, using your male privilege to make things right for women in the world. So thank you for that. And for your even broader uh, work that you do in DEI, thank you for that as well. No, absolutely. Like you said, when it's, when it's your passion, it, it becomes a pleasure. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One quick thing before we go, because you just said that it made me think of, um, I did a recent show on Ikigai, which you may have mm -hmm. heard of. Um, it seems that you found your ikigai. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All Thank right. You. Yeah. Well, have a good one, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>